And welcome back. 2020, it's going to be a massive decade. Happy New Year to all our listeners. You are joining Nemi Yusini on the New Republic podcast where we talk about everything, experimentation, personalization, and I always say that ugly word, CRO. I'm joined again by my very fantastic co-host, Richard. Want to say hello, mate? Hello. Happy New Year. Yay. And Jess. Happy New Year, guys. Hi. Happy New Year. What did you guys do? Did you have a good break? Fantastic. That's nice. Rich, did you go anywhere? Did you stay in town? Could not be more refreshed and ready to start a new decade. I know, right? Another decade. I feel like by the end of this, I might be dead. Anyway, different story. Given it's the start of the year, I thought we should start with predictions. 2020, what are your predictions? So the subject's going to be today, top CRO or experimentation predictions for this new decade. Um, ideally, what I'm hoping for is by the end of this, we as a team can give you some ideas of where we see the market going, what are the cool stuff that we see that could be happening, and what are the biggest learnings out of 2019. So actually, that's a nice way to start. What did you guys feel were the biggest learnings for the, from the last decade, the last year? Who wants to start on a big note like that? So I'll start. Uh, I guess one of the biggest learnings uh, for me is uh, understanding the opportunity costs for experiments. So I guess we we forget that in our old world, we would have just made changes to the site based on some analytics, potentially some user research, and just kind of waited to see performance. Yep. But we didn't look at what the actual cost of implementing some of the things that we thought were no-brainers. So I guess for me, it's been understanding that failures are just as important as successes. So basically we're focused on how much revenue we're getting from our successful ones, but we often will put to the side how much it would have cost if we had put implemented one of our failed experiments without testing. I like that. It's actually really interesting. I, when we were asking a few years ago, OzForex about the return that they were getting on their investment with Optimizely and from their experimentation program, uh, they were able to share some pretty cool figures about the amount of increased revenue they got. But when we were being told that, they said, the amount that we've saved is so much greater than that, but we're never going to tell you that figure. Huh. Do you know, I, was, um, I just came back from the UK, right, where we're doing this big project for a, a currency exchange company. Anyway, the guys who uh, we're working with there, they run the experimentation program for, uh, for Domino's. And they said that um, they did a study on, on just one experiment and they identified like the test lost, but when they calculated out, Domino's would have lost around about $28 million if they had implemented it. So just that losing test, they realized, Jesus, it's a good thing we didn't put that into place. Yeah, absolutely. And we've had kind of a few clangers like that over the last year that, you know, we can obviously push aside as just, oh, that experiment didn't work. But it's important to realize that the value in the experiment program of work is testing and understanding that things can cost us money when they don't work. Yeah. You know, the one thing I, I, I the one thing I walked out of last year, which I'm, I'm actually creating into a, a way of testing is, um, I'm call it time series blocking. 
So like, you know how you have an experiment, right? You say, okay, I'm going to test this one variable. And, you know, within that, I've realized when you do experimentations, there's really only four things you can test on, right? One is, one is format, so what it looks like. One is placement, where it is. One is journey, what part of the journey you do placement and format. And the last one is message. You know, what are you actually going to say? And so I realized, like, within one experiment, if you take those four paradigms, you've actually got a series of tests that you can run through, which means on any one experiment, you're going super deep. And that's one, I think one of my biggest learnings was I've been looking at this as like a singular A-B test rather than a series of, a, of, of sequential A-B tests that helps me see the problem in multiple dimensions. That's been seriously cool. Like I really enjoyed doing that because it was like, okay, that didn't work. What about this? Actually, yeah, that, that started working. So then went to the next one and went, how does that affect the next thing or the one I just did? And it was really cool. I, the, the learnings you get out of it is so different. Anyway, that was mine. Rich? Biggest learning, the thing that I saw was the sophistication is growing. Uh, prior to this, so 2017, 2018, I had a lot of organizations saying, A-B testing, my insert tool here already does that. Marketing automation platform, my CRM, my merchandising platform, my search tool, my analytics, I can already do this. Whereas last year, um, the biggest thing that I saw was a shift to, we've been doing this with insert tool here, but have run into limits and now we need to formalize a program, expand it, scale it. We need extra capability. So I'm really encouraged by that in terms of the practice in Australia overall. That really leads to my next one really nicely. What do you see changing in the practice experimentation in 2020? That's a, that's a nice segue. So, do, so that's interesting. So you think the market's getting more mature? Yeah, I, I really do. Um, the people, so more people are doing it, but more than that, I think more people are wanting to do it really well. Yeah. Whereas previously it was just enough to do it. I yeah. think it's uh, going to, the conversation around it is going to definitely move from people trying to get started with experimentation to how they're pushing the boundaries with experimentation. So a lot of the kind of conferences and conversation is going to be heaps more engaging from well these are actually things that we can take and try at home yeah nice take try at home i love at that. work i mean <laughs> that's what you do at home you run <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting so if, if jess if you're willing to share like what do you think is going to be one changing thing you're going to do in your practice um, so there's kind of two, two things that we're probably focused on the most for 2020 and that's increasing our investment in um, the personalization side and trying to really prove out the value for that so we can kind of scope it into the business um, as usual. Yep. Um, but another kind of more exciting experience um, that we're aiming to uh, look into is around integrating experimentation with some of our machine learning um, models uh, to kind of be able to make real-time decisions on uh, what optimal experiences we should be serving based on our big data, I suppose. So not just focused in on what our web experience is in, but like what do we know about people and their behaviour and then if they look like they're likely to let's say, go for a quote, how can we optimise that journey? And starting to really hone in on experiences versus, I guess, a more high-level 
CRO making some changes on a page. Are you thinking more, is that more messaging or is that more like structure or is it both? It could be any of it really. So that's something that we're kind of diving into this year and it'll be interesting to see kind of what we learn in, in that um, process. So personalization and machine learning are your big ticket items for 2020. Yeah, pretty much. That's really cool, actually. Does it's exciting. Scare, yeah, does it scare the hell out of you, this whole machine learning and integrating it in? It, it does a little bit, but I guess what I'm trying to do in the process is to put a framework in place that kind of enables us to go to town on all these things and then, you know, have kind of a process in place in which we tackle all the things that we could do. Yeah. What, what would a process like that look like? Oh, good question. I guess it would be kind of how we, how we build out a hypothesis for changing these things, what data is going in to use it, what different areas of the business that we could touch with it as well. Um, mm. So, for instance, if it is, it would become a whole personalization experience um, around we got this knowledge about you on site and then how that kind of would roll out to other areas and the governance that we'd put around that, I suppose. Is the data just the on-site data or can you, are you thinking bigger than that in terms of machine learning models could be everything that you've got that Correct. is then touching all aspects of the journey? Yeah, absolutely. We're definitely pulling away from just on-site data. And I think that is definitely something that people have been doing for a while However, I think now we're starting to see how, like you said, the sophistication is coming into it where we are understanding the capability of all the tools that we have available that make up our stack to make it all kind of work together. That's really cool. How do you govern? Like, what's the govern process? Like, if that thing's <laughs> I'm not getting into any more. <laughs> I've always wondered, like, when you get into that world where it's like automation comes in and like, things are happening on the fly and the machines kind of kicking in. How does like, I know whenever you do any kind of experiment or personalization, compliance is a big part of that whole process around what you say, the context in which you say it. Like I've always wondered, like when you get to that level, how, com how compliance falls into it and how they manage those risks. I'm just super curious. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely something that you've got to monitor and make sure that your legal and compliance teams are across some of the yeah. experiences that you want to present. And I think once you start touching the surface on some of these things, it's really important to get that governance in place early so that you are ready to scale. Yeah. I, I actually think a piece of that is the technology itself. We've, we've been looking at machine learning and building machine learning related solutions for a number of years. And what we found before we started that was that anything that had machine learning typically was human or machine. So you would hand over the experience to the machine learning technology that is creating the models, iterating the models and delivering the experiences and you lose a lot of the control. So you don't know what the customer is seeing and that makes the compliance quite difficult. Um, the approach that we've taken is human and machine so yes, use the machine learning models to be able to provide optimal experiences, but be sure that you're coming up with and iterating on and testing those experiences so that compliance is involved and happy. 
So I, uh, the w word of warning for anyone taking your evolution of the practice of experimentation would be look for human and machine. We're not the only ones that do it, but a lot of organizations are hand over the keys and that's scary. Yeah, but I mean, like a lot of it, at the end of the day, there's, there's, a, there's a human element that feeds the machine. And you're right, I think you need the practice of both. You know what, my, my one I want to add here is, um, I've, been, I've been getting more into these kind of agile experimentation sprints. So working with organizations who are like, like redoing a web experience or a digital experience, and what they, the company in the UK we're working with, what we're doing is we're designing the experience. And then because this train's moving so quick, because they've got to get this, this, is, this sprint out, what they're doing is they're running smaller tests on some of the micro elements or some of the micro engagements, and then identifying weak, weak points in the, in the design and then coming up with solutions as the, as the design's still moving forward, even with those weak points, and then feeding the solution in as soon as it goes live, they then feed that component that failed, updating it with the one that won. So these kind of really faster agile sprints around new product design and using experimentation to identify the weak points in the design. Does that, does that make sense? It's super cool, man. Like we, I just like, I got to the UK and we mapped out and we started doing it and I'm like, this is like the coolest thing I've ever done. It's like, always wondered how do you bring experiments to new concepts like the product's not live but you need to do something you've got to design this new experience right so they've got us engaged on doing the ux bit and so we're working with their incumbent experimentation business and so they were like we want you to design the experience but we want to know where things go wrong but we can't stop it you've got to be live by this date so we're like, okay, cool. So then as we're designing the experimentation team, we're designing and we're coming up with hypotheses around, well, we think we should do that. They then, then write that down as a test and go away and design concepts against that and validate whether what we're doing is going to work or not. And if it doesn't, we don't stop. We keep going. They then go and find a solution that on when, as soon as you go live day two, they come and implement. It's really, it's just such a different way to work and such a different way where traditional UX and CRO start to really come together on new product design. It's so different. Is that impressive? Cause I'm really impressed by it. I don't know why. I just think it's cool. Like it's not machine learning. It's not that new stuff. It's well, old. yeah, I guess how do they, how do they validate the variance that they put in before it gets to life? Well, this is the thing, right? And it's, it's crazy, but genius at the same time. They're like, Design an experience. Okay, you do CRO, you know this, you know UX. Go and des design this new experience for us. And as we're concepting, right? Now, they've got an existing experience, but we're kind of rethinking that experience with tweaks on what, with elements of what they have, right? So, like, as we're designing, we know we're hypothesizing certain elements will work and where we think it won't work. So, we're then handing that off to the experimentation team to then take that and build that into a test as we've got it and then variance on top to find a better combination or a better way running on the existing experience running on the existing experience yeah. right but then the crazy thing is they're saying don't stop what you're doing even if it fails keep designing with that we'll then update it once we go live we'll then update it with the variant that works which is just it's so crazy as a met like you've got this speeding train and then you've got this thing next to it just building these kind of contingency plans yeah so i guess at the end when you send it live would they show your version against 
the optimal version or would they? They then run my version, right? They send my version up, but they know where the weak points are. So, you know, when you do like big enterprise site designs, you send it live, you have no idea where the weak points are. This process identifies the weak points and they've already predefined what a stronger version is, a stronger element is. So then they just update those elements in the next sprint. So that in any point they have a two week downfall, but they know what points are the downfalls and they optimize those. It's, it's the coolest thing I've been involved in. How long until the, the full one goes live and then we can uh, ask you again, how did that go? Did this yes. <laughs> so, so this whole experience, like it is gigantic, this thing. It's an app that we're then moving it up to a desktop experience and a mobile web experience. It's huge. And the whole thing has to be live by May. So the, the devs are just sitting there taking those concepts and straight build. And then the optimization team is following right behind. It is like, it is the most different thing I've ever done. And I, it answers that whole bit where there are organizations that just need to redo their website. Like they just want to do the whole thing from scratch. But then when they do that, they don't identify where are the state, where are the bits that are going to fall over in this experience. This is really unique in the way it takes a traditional model and merges it with this new way of thinking and experimentation, but still has that kind of speed to it. I think it's cool. I hope everyone else does. Richard, did you say yours? What was your prediction? I, I, I didn't. And I actually, the two things that I think we're going to see this year hit on points that both of you guys have made. Uh, the first one, which is maybe a little generic, is on the topic of personalization, spent the last few years hearing people saying, we would like to execute personalization. We have segments, we have strategy, now we need a tool to execute. Uh, what I think we're gonna hear in 2020 is much more about personalization experiments. We know yeah. we wanna personalize, but there's absolutely no way we're gonna get it right the first time. So yeah. what we need to do is prove what works and prove who it works with before we go rolling that out to an entire segment. Absolutely. Like there's been so much conversation about personalization for years, absolute years. And no one's quite hit on the head how to implement it. Or for me, I think it's the knowing the value. So yes, we can create these personalized experiences, but what is the value that it's going to provide for the effort that we put in? And I yeah. think that's where a lot of the experiment side of personalization is going to come into it in terms of how do we say that this is what we should be like from an experience of a, a member going and saying we know stuff about you so we'll provide you with what you need that's great it is a feel nice scenario but whether it actually feeds into some of those business metrics is where i'm still a little bit dubious hence personalization experiments are going to be key for us as well we as an organization, when we built the personalization side of the tool, had the experience that you're delivering and a holdback, and the holdback was about 5%. You could change that, but it was 5%. What you got was an ongoing monitoring. You didn't get the original proof. Mm. So really what you want is to run it at 50-50 to prove it yeah. as quickly as possible as an A-B test, a personalization experiment, before you go ramping it up to a That's month. crazy, man. We just, we just had this exact conversation with a client of ours. Like literally, we were like, we had a control, but our control was about 10, 10%. And we were like, let's ramp this up and just get it to the conclusion and know exactly which way we need to go. And you're so right. It actually is a much better way to run the program because you quickly figure out what's the best thing to deliver and just hit on that. Can I say, 
Rich, you saw my limbic presentation that we did for that very large online business. Yes. My second prediction is that's going to be the next. So there's a guy called Don Norman. He wrote a book called The Design of Everyday Things, right? He then followed up with a book called Emotion. And one of my big things, I think the next, and I said this years ago and I got laughed at and this might happen again. So I'm just putting it out there. He said, well, this is what I said as well. He, he predicts that the next wave of the internet, which brands are going to start to, is tapping into the emotion of why people do what they do. Because everything's very functional, but we don't really tap into the underlying motivators and the emotions that drive those behaviors. So he wrote a whole book. And in, in Design of Everyday Things, he talked about the mechanical part of the brain and how it processes things. But he forgot emotion. So he wrote this book on it. So my next prediction is emotions are going to become critical to personalization. I've written heaps of stuff on it. That's the next big thing. Get on the bandwagon. I would, I would get on that bandwagon. There was a cool, I'm not going to remember it and I didn't pull it up before this. So forgive me if I misquote it, but Gibson Biddle, former head of yeah, product Netflix. for Netflix, uh, was, was sharing some information about the recommendations algorithm that they built and the journey that they went on. Uh, and one of the things that they found was that your age and gender have nothing, no link, no connection to what you watch. This is true. And I really like that as an example because most people begin their personalization strategies with demographic features. So Absolutely. True. So true. Like age is a factor of decision-making. But that's how most brands come up with their marketing strategies and things like that as well. Like there's a fundamental flaw in the whole like marketing world in terms of understanding how to segment your audience and what actually appeals to them was that a challenge for you just like educating the marketing team out of hen portraits uh, you know was <laughs> right okay got it yeah <laughs> prediction <laughs> we'll change the marketing team's point it's, it's also once we start to understand all the data that we have access to we can build a better understanding of segmentations that matter segmentations that will behave a different way to yeah. others um, or to the default. Yeah. Uh, interestingly, the, one of the VPs of marketing at IBM said, the data that you need is not in a database waiting to be looked up. You need to create that data. So true, so true. And you know, one of the big things I think gets missed within any kind of UX work or even experimentation design is tagging the conversation of, how are we going to tag this? What data are we going to extract? You know, if it is a winner, how do you tag this to extract future data? It's such a true point. It's such an afterthought. So Jess, if you think about what information you want to feed that model, you could probably create that with A-B tests on the side. Yeah, absolutely. I have another prediction. Rich is going to be a genius this year. Already... <laughs> genius but this year he will be true genius okay so following up on that i have a prediction and this is you heard it first here this isn't me looking at what else is going on this is me thinking actual thinking <laughs> optimize has been banging the drum about product experimentation for a number of years now uh marketers have been doing it on websites in terms of conversion rate optimization for a long time but we start to see product teams using a b testing to optimize features like server-side testing? Right. That's not the prediction. Server-side testing is something that we've been talking about for a while. Some organizations are doing it. Many are not. Yeah. 
my prediction is that many more are going to engage in this, but not because they're trying to optimize features or because they're trying to find the best variation of features, which we've been talking about for a long time. Yeah. It's because they want to monitor the business performance when they're rolling out new features. So after they've tested, they want to roll it out and see how it's performing, right? So from an engineering perspective, when you go to build a new feature, best practice is one of the first things you write is the monitoring code. So you understand if as that feature is rolling out, it's impacting application performance. Got it. Is my app breaking? But what about monitoring the business performance as you're rolling out that feature? Am I crushing my conversions, my revenue, my time on site, whatever it might be? Um, so using A-B testing functionality, it's the same functionality, but to just monitor the business performance of new features the same way you do application performance. Absolutely. We've recently um, released a feature as a test to start off with, and the um, development team kind of insisted that we run a 10% to see that it's all kind of working, and then it kind of went to a 50-50%. And um, we had mixed results. We found quite a few error, like errors that we would not normally have picked up. And so it's been really good from validating that type of experience. However, we've come to a decision. It works better in the long run. Fantastic. Let's go. But when we're talking about the next iteration of these type of features, I am like, oh, do we just go straight to a... 50-50 test of it and they're like no we have to do the smaller version we have to follow this process and so it's yeah not about necessarily running the experiment it's also being used as a way to kind of help that feature develop and make sure that it's perfect for on site and seeing what it's impacting um, as it's released so I never really understood that whole 10% thing like it's like ripping off a Band-Aid. You know, you do 50-50, you'll get to the outcome way quicker than going 10, then to 20. Yeah, but like, if you had... off the Band-Aid. It's more like, you know, if there is a significant hole in where the... So let's say every join doesn't actually go through even though it looks like it does. Yeah. It's kind of a nice way to impact only 10% or 5% of your audience. Then. I also think it's the speed with which you can roll back if releases if, if it, to make the change from oh my god it was 50 50 and this is tanking let's roll it back if that took two weeks then that's a real problem and something if you break a process that only runs every two weeks you might not know about it until the next time it runs like it's a say it, it's a safety mechanism but organizations that develop with remote configuration like feature flags like rollouts those then have the ability to just turn it off the same way that Nima, any experiment that you've run, you can just click the button and turn it off. Yeah. I suppose there's a big thing when you're saying about business metrics is now the, with the amount of data that we're able to capture, we're able to kind of see the impact in the back end systems as well. So the business process um, areas and understand the impact that these changes are having there, which take a little bit longer to understand than if you uh, ran a test for you know, a week or whatever to see that it's performing okay. <laughs> I love it. So let's, um, let's wrap up, guys. It's getting late. So um, top tips, last question. What are your top tips for anyone starting in 2020? Start with machine learning. 
<laughs> yeah, get yourself a data scientist and a data engineer and just go to town. <laughs> Controversial. Get your compliance team on board. Yeah. <laughs> Who wants to go with this one? Hey, Rich, why don't you start this one? What's your... I, I thought long and hard about this one. Top tips for anyone starting in 2020. Yeah, starting, starting. Get, so you've heard the vibe. Yeah. This year. Get specialized help. There is absolutely no reason to reinvent the wheel. Anyone you're thinking about it? Yeah, yeah. We, we see so many people who start a program and then try and figure it out and it takes months and months, potentially even longer with no return. What is the point in that? There are um, a handful of incredibly talented organizations that specialize in this around the world. Um, one of them co-hosts this podcast and they can deliver ROI in an incredibly fast fashion and set you up for much faster success. Hey, we have we, better advertising than that. Wait, we have stats around this. So from the data we've been able to pull, an organization that begins a program with specialized help launches 64% more experiments. Wow. And 38% more experiments reach statistical significance. Velocity and learnings are the only reason that we're in this game. So why would you not do that? That's pretty cool, dude. Actually, and I suppose that would be a business case that you would put together to say, we believe that having six months of money put into a specialized help will have this return. And Jess, you, you got some specialized help, right? To get to that next stage, right? I mean, it wasn't us, but you got, you got another agency, you know, the guys at Luberry to help out, right? Uh, yes. And that's kind of been something that after running our experimentation for a couple of years, we have decided to yeah. get the specialized help to allow us to scale um and ramp things up yeah so i'm gonna on the back of what rich said there is another solution and i'm really sorry but i've got to do it so because we want more people to be running experiments you know something i learned last year that my job is not to compete with other competitors my job is to help grow the category so if i can make more australian brands run experiments then everyone's richer for the experience so what we decided to do is we're launching in an education product i don't know if you got guys got my email about what we're doing but another way to start this year is come to our training programs because i'm tired of people doing experimentation programs with absolutely no knowledge and hence they failed so another really cheap fast way to get into it is come and do a training program learn how to do it learn how to use the tools and then hopefully you'll be more successful or just pay us and we'll come and do it for you. <laughs> Very nice. Yes. What's your top tip? Tip top. I've got, yeah, I have a few things here and um, I guess they're not necessarily <laughs> about that. I feel like what you're saying is a hard thing to say to someone starting 2020 who doesn't have the budget to go into a training course or get specialized help. And I think that sounds like definitely somewhere that would be beneficial if you can just get that first step so that you can yeah. start somewhere. But I guess uh, what I've had, what I have here around starting with experimentation is really knowing where you're going to get your bang for your buck in the experience. So you can get the most reward from the effort that you're going to put into run an experiment so is that like nowhere to test right Jess like where is the best place to experiment on your site or your app or whatever yeah so plenty of people want to start with experimentation and they'll be like oh well let's start on 
this really granular component within our join funnel and see if we'll have a positive impact. And I think that's definitely somewhere that you can go later on once you've kind of validated that concept. But looking higher up in the funnel, you can get some really quick wins that will give you a lot more reward because they're focused on a lot more people. And it's really a great way to start putting a bit of that money where your mouth is in terms of trying to build out an experimentation program. And then basically it's just the same thing that I, uh, that I always say around kind of talking about all the outcomes that you get to. So just go for it, try out a tool, which is against what you guys are saying, (laughs) but you know, get in there, try out a tool and then talk about all the outcomes, failures, success, successes velocity and trying to build the hype for that i think is is definitely it's where i kind of started and it's i promote it if you are that way inclined if you have the capability a bit of experience in development like html and css and javascript or whatever then you can you're probably more likely to be able to run with some of starting that experiment program yourself good tips i like those tips so Jess, a question. Do you think that this practice could become mainstream enough that you don't need to start in that way? Trying to hack something together to get some initial wins to then go and shout for more budget. That executives and the the returns to business would be so obvious that you could actually set up a program for real for the first time. Like, might not be today, but at some point in the future, would you think that that would be a reality? Absolutely. And I think with um, a lot more of your bigger brands, you're going to be successful in bringing up case studies that have happened and just getting the conversation started with some agencies to kind of see the value that they've been able to provide in these tools. I feel like a lot of more brands are wanting to place the bet I suppose on experimentation and invest some money in there it's really hard for people to turn away from spending money in spaces that people are talking about it is the hype people are saying how much value experimentation is providing them now so yeah hopefully like I said in my earlier point hopefully it is moving away from how do I get it started to what is some cool shit I'm doing with this tool yeah, I think it's like, it's like, let's just do it and let's be serious about it. Let's get the right technologies, right partners and stuff. That's what you said. Absolutely. And our involvement with an agency and with the taking on Optimizely has ramped things up yeah. tenfold in as to where we were, as to our approach, as to our strategy, as to our framework that we're putting in place. Yeah. So, yeah, I definitely agree with what you both are saying in terms of how you can get more bang for your buck early um however if you're still in that trying to get money trying to get the program up yourself those are my top tips i think you're right it's the context in which you're working in that changes how you you'd approach it right yeah Yeah, absolutely really to summarize what you're saying is okay focus on where you're going to test top of funnel is just as good as bottom funnel you might get better results that you can scream about get in and do it have fun get start playing and you might get some outcomes Rich, I love yours. Get a partner. All support for that. And then my one was, you don't have to get a partner all the time. You can now do training. If only they could see my smile and the ding. Yeah. So that's it. I think that's it for our show for 2020. I thought, I reckon that is the best one we've done yet. Good banter. Everyone's enjoying themselves. Jess is super relaxed. It's all working. 
This Fantastic. Is Thanks, Fema. What do you do? You look great. You look relaxed. This is the vibe for 2020. So <laughs> with that, let's wrap it up. Thank you very much to all our listeners. We, I am hoping this will continue for the rest of the year. This type of banter is fantastic. Make sure that you, if you come on and you have a comment, there's a link down the bottom of the, of whatever I, um, player you're using that links to our email address that you can leave your comments and suggestions. And we'll be back next month with even more great stuff to talk about. My name is Nemi Yassini, your host for the New Republic podcast. Big thanks to Rich. Thanks, Rich, for joining us. And a big thanks to Jess. And don't forget to email us your comments. Thanks for listening. See you next month. <laughs>